1: Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into our third hour. Come to you live from the Guns Etc. studios. If you're on hold, we'll get to you in just a moment, I promise. I wanted to pick up on a conversation that started at the end of the last segment with Sandra in Peoria. Sandra, are you still with us?
0: Yes, sir, I am. Thank, Thank you, you for
1: your patience. Thank you for waiting. Thank Absolutely. you for bringing up what you did bring up. Can I try and summarize it and you correct me if I have it wrong and then we'll get to discussing Uh, it? You bet. Uh, Your concern was, as I understood it, uh, as someone who has lived here, has lived in Chicago, that uh, the, the, the divisions in this country have not only, you know, divided networks and divided people from one another, they've divided family and friendships from one another. In you know, a way over politics you've never seen before, and the uh, basic decencies and fundamental building blocks of society just don't seem to be there anymore, and it's because of politics. Help me out if I'm misstating a little of what you're saying.
0: No, no. Everything you're saying is absolutely true. Okay. Uh, yes, sir. Continue, please.
1: Okay, well, let's discuss it a little bit. Uh, when, did it, when did you first notice it?
0: Um, I actually I noticed it when Trump first won the election. Uh, I the, the I didn't real I didn't think the Democrats would react the way they did. I thought it was something that would pass the way you know both sides sometimes when they run <laughs> for election, um, they get upset and then they bang their head against the wall for a couple of days and then they get on with their lives, You know, politics is the You know, it's not supposed to destroy our relationships and family. It's not supposed to be
1: that important in some respects. Exactly. Yeah. Yes,
0: sir. It's important. It's important when we want our government to function right, which is right now. Yes, that's true. But it's not not to destroy. It's not worth destroying your friends, your family, the most important, you know, beings in your life, the relationships which will, you know, be there for you at the end. Uh, politics is not going to be there for you, you know, at, at the end. I mean, it's only something we debate, we learn from, we share, we, we give and take. And that's how my father debated with us when we were growing up. He gave us the freedom to choose to be whoever we wanted, my parents. They gave us that freedom. That, that, that Both my parents came here, educated themselves, and you know what? They... In, inspired us to do the same. And my father never spoke ill of the Democrat Party. Let me tell you something. I remember being a teenager and you know when you're a teenager you kind of say smart remarks. And I remember my dad stopping me and saying, you know what, if it wasn't for the Democrats and my dad's a conservative saying this, he said, we wouldn't have civil you wouldn't have civil liberties. And that kind of put me in my tracks and said, you know what? Both sides have positives and negatives, but right now it seems that, the, you know, it's like Star Wars, you know, you know, you, you go to the dark side, and it seems that the, the Democrats are destroying their brothers and sisters, uh, you know, each of us are supposed to balance each other out, the conservatives and the Democrats, that's how it's always been. You know, we have eight years of Democrats, or we have eight years of Republicans, our country ends up being balanced, okay? And it reminds us of, it reminds us of certain um, policies, certain things that are important for the country. But now it seems like it's a power grab. Yeah. And what I'm fearing right now, sir, is the fact that I feel like my, my government is trying to exterminate us. And I'm not going to lie about that. It's, um, a, okay. it's a I it's a it's
1: it takes me back to something see C- thank you Sandra it, it, I appreciate your 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 question here let's let's try and work ourselves around it or into it or through it it reminds me of something CS Lewis once wrote that a man should think about politics only as he should think about medicine in other words you should think about politics he said so that you can really think about other things It's an interesting, uh, interesting what he foresaw there, isn't it? Politics and medical issues or medicinal uh, uh, issues have become the hottest uh, burning topics who that that take everyone's fingers uh, and have been doing so since certainly the beginning of 2020. But you're right. It goes back to Trump and you're right. It goes back to the coverage of the election of Trump. Uh, There are any number of examples. The first one that comes to mind. Was off of MSNBC the night Donald Trump won the election in 2016, and it was Rachel Maddow on MSNBC who said, "This is not a nightmare you are having. This is now your reality. This is America now." They can't. You remember that, right? They pitched it as a nightmare in real life, as a night of the Walking Uh Dead, if you want. I remember watching elections, presidential elections, avidly starting in seriously in 1976 forward. No news journalist talked about elections or presidential elections that way. They never editorialized. Now, one could argue MSNBC wasn't exactly CBS or NBC. These people were opinion um, were opinion hosts, but they were put on mm-hmm. the same plane as NBC and CBS. And by the way, NBC and CBS did their part too, and they were just a very minimal centimeter away from the sentiments of Rachel Maddow. I, I, um, I heard an interview the other day with the. Uh, it's a stretch to call her this, but that's what she calls herself. With the comedian Kathy Griffin, you remember Kathy Griffin, the redheaded yeah. comedian. Yeah. who held up a severed head of Donald Trump with blood coming out of it. Remember that? That's
0: just not funny. That's not just – that was not funny. Right. So I heard
1: an interview with her the other day complaining about how she wasn't just canceled for that. She was erased. And we were made to try and feel badly and sorry for her. She did that five months in to the first year of the Trump administration. Five months in. And we are now supposed to feel sorry for her. This was then routine. You had guest after guest after guest on every network except talking about the fascism and dangers of Donald Trump. You had smart people. In liberal cities talking about if they were gay, how afraid they were for their families because of Donald Donald. Trump. Never mind. He put the first gay person in his cabinet, though Biden likes to brag that he did. It was actually Donald Trump. They had people on CNN professors at colleges and universities saying Donald Trump was worse than Adolf Hitler. He was called fascist. He was called racist. He was called a tyrant. You inject that into the body politic on a repeating loop and enough people are going to buy into that such that if you liked Donald Trump or voted for him or supported him, your friends, your family members thought of you as supporting a tyrant, a racist and a fascist. Right. They did this.
0: They broke this
1: thin veil. They did this. Right.
0: Not us. Sir, you know, I'm not going to take up too much of your time. I know you have other callers, but, you know, Donald Trump was an ex-Democrat, okay? Yep. He was in pictures with Rosa Parks. You mean to tell me this man overnight decided to be a bigot and a racist? Right. That doesn't, it's not logic. It defies logic. You bet. You know, racism isn't isn't in than, you know, is your
1: child. And, and Joe Biden's can't, by the, the way, Sandra, Joe Biden said his can at least 10 times during the campaign. He said the reason he decided to run for president. Uh-huh. Do you remember what it was that made him decide yeah. to run for president was when he saw Donald sure. Trump no, praise no. white supremacists. It's a lie. Yeah. It's a lie. The okay, entire well, yeah. candidacy of Joe Biden was based on. On a lie. I don't know whether Joe Biden knew the lie or not. I don't know whether he knew it was a lie or not. But it was a lie that was perpetuated by the media. It didn't happen. He didn't say it. They edited and cut it so that it made it look like that's what he was saying. It wasn't. It wasn't true then. It's not true now. But you and I are still laboring under the uh, impression from friends and family members, that we support a party that represents fascism. And that's why there's a divide in this country. That's why there's a divide. Because they couldn't handle the fact that some of us actually believe borders matter, not just for other countries, but for this one, that some of us believe the First Amendment should be held up as sanctified, that some of us believe... That if you work hard for a living, you should have as much right to as much of what you earn as possible. That some of us believe that the most vulnerable person in America that needs protecting is the voiceless unborn. That some of us believe that it's not a good idea to throw billions of dollars to terrorist regimes that want to destroy us and our allies. For that, we were called racist, bigots, and fascists. That's what drove us apart, Sandra. I'll stick with where I am. You stick with where you are. They're the ones that have making up to do. Welcome back to The Seth Leibson Show, brought to you live from the Guns Etc. Studios. It is cold out. It is wintertime. You want to keep your immunity boosted. I can think of no better way to do that than the natural way through Balance of Nature, which I take every single day. Go to balanceofnature.com. Check out their fruits and veggies. It's the only whole food supplement with no additives, fillers, extracts, synthetics, pesticides, or any added sugar outside of what comes from their powerful and potent blend of tomatoes, papayas, bananas, apples, wild blueberries, grapefruit, you name it. Red onion, red cabbage, garlic, carrot, kale, green onion, balanceofnature.com. Get your fruits and veggies through the magic of their produce. Use discount code balance. com. discount code balance can take it every single day. And if you need a little extra pick-me-up, you can even take more. Rich is in Phoenix. Hello, Rich.
2: Hi, good afternoon. How are you? Um, regarding the subject, um, well, regarding the subject you were just talking about, um, in 2016, I did not vote for Trump. I did not vote for Hillary either, but I was completely sold by the media that she was going to win by a landslide. So I voted libertarian. And, you know, and then when Trump won, it's like we lived through eight years of Obama. You know, what's the big deal? Slow right. down. You know, right. Trump's in there. Four years. Let's see what he does. Well, I felt like he did great things compared to most politicians. So, you know, the Democrats call us Nazis and fascists and all this BS. And it's at worst we call them hypocrites or misinformed and you know willing to talk about it and they're not willing to Maybe we should or-
1: call them liars. You make a good point, Rich. You make a good point from before day 1. From before day 1. Not only was he a fascist and a racist and a bigot, he was a he was a colluder with Russia. Um he was a tyrant. 4 years. Yeah, can you give me Putin an example? Four years of this. Give me an example of the tyranny we lived under. Give me an example of the fascism we lived under. Give me an example of the racism and bigot- and big and bigotry we lived under. They cannot, because he was not. They can and they don't. Right. But they are liars. I mean, I don't know who is a bigger
2: crook. Clinton or or the Bidens. I mean they're they're neck and neck for the biggest crooks. Yeah. And nobody and Nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody in the media wants to talk about that.
1: And you know why, right? You know why? They've had a microscope. They they don't want to talk about it because they don't really care about it. They don't really care about whether Joe Biden or his son's involvement with shady business dealings with other countries using his dad. They don't really care about any of that stuff compared to whether Donald Trump had shady business dealings with his family or with other countries. They don't really care about that. They care about any port in the storm of democracy they can put their ship to get the left-wing ideological public policy in place. I don't think if we had nominated Jeb Bush – And if Jeb Bush had beaten Hillary Clinton, it would have been any different. And the reason I say that, I don't think Jeb Bush could have beaten Hillary Clinton, but I don't think it would have been any different. And the reason I say that is the left in the media were saying this about Jeb Bush's brother. They were saying it about Ronald Reagan. They were saying, about, saying it about Barry Goldwater. They were saying it about Mitt Romney. It's just by the time 2016 had rolled around, the left had so funded and so taken over so many more institutions, including social media and its expansion and including cable as well as network news and its expansion that the volume became louder and the ability for them to project those points of view not only got louder but became more accepted and more adopted because the average person isn't going to research for themselves. If the average person would research for themselves, there would be no new, no need for cable news. There would be no need for news. There would be no need for newspapers. The average person, no one who listens to this show is an average person, any more than anyone who... Anyone who uh, pays attention to what Tucker Carlson is saying is an average person. Average people don't have time to do that kind of research. The average person hears what their friends say. They read what their, what their, what their, what their friends and likes on Facebook say and on Twitter. They don't have time to do the research. So if they see something on Facebook, look, we have this in our movement a little bit too. Someone may have said to you at one point or another, Rich, oh, I heard such and such. And it's a rather extraordinary thing. I just can't think of a specific example. But you can think of something outrageous you may have. I've heard such and such. Oh, where'd you hurt? I saw it on Facebook. That we have heard too on our side. We have heard it. But it proliferates throughout the left with a difference The difference is that it's not just on Facebook. It's on cable television. If something's on TV, it has to be somewhat true, doesn't it? It has a ring of truth. They wouldn't be lying to me. They wouldn't be telling me something they know to be untrue, would they? Well, think about it for a moment. Dennis Prager's very good on this point. Think about it for just a moment. If they're willing to call a New York businessman who, yes, gets the Tree of Life Award from the Jewish National Fund and gets the Ellis Island Award for helping minority communities, a guy who operates in one of the most multi-ethnic places in the world, if they can take this man and make him a racial, a racist and a bigot and a fascist, if they can do that— Think about what they can do with everything he says and every policy we stand for underneath that. I remember with I can I use names here? I don't know. When Donald Trump first entered the race and the stuff started coming in about him being a bigot and a racist from the left, uh, called a very respected businessman in New York, a name you would know, not Trump, but it's a name you would know. And I said – because I had done some projects with him before and I didn't know Donald Trump. I just didn't. I've never met him. I still haven't. Um, I said, is this – is any of this true? Is, Is this guy really a racist and a bigot? The guy said, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. You can't really operate in New York anywhere above the lowest level of radar by being a racist and a bigot the city would chew you up and throw you out and it made sense to me you see what the power of the left can do they're the ones that have destroyed politics in this country they're the ones who have make it made it impossible for us to have a civic and civil society with family and friends they're the ones who have made they're the ones that have made politics the most important thing to dis, to to know about when you go and encounter another human being or another family member what's your politics you like trump or you don't it's a question that never used to be asked you know why because they made trump a totem for fascism racism and bigotry and yeah i don't want to be friends with racists and bigots and fascists i refuse to be but think about an entire part of the country that thinks that as well and thinks your guy is that they did that they ruined this place Welcome back to The Seth Liebson Show. Just as promised, it's a delight to bring you Josh Hammer. He is, as I have uh, mentioned before, among other things, the opinion editor at Newsweek, the host of The Josh Hammer Show, a syndicated columnist, and uh, a dear friend of this show as well. He wrote a column in Newsweek about a tricky issue, tricky because a lot of conservatives may be unused to it, but one we have to get our heads around and around right. The limit the Limits of Appeals to Cancel Culture, it's called. Josh, welcome back to the show. What are you trying to get at here?
3: So, Seth, thanks so much for having me on, obviously. You so, betcha. Look, this particular column that I wrote today was kind of looking back, obviously. I mean, the Whoopi Goldberg incident, the kerfuffle, was the most recent kind of cancel culture-related incident. Um, you know, my good personal friend, Ilya Shapiro, Georgetown Law, has been under fire for a completely anodyne and, I would say, thoroughly non-controversial tweet, and his job is outrageously somehow just in jeopardy for this tweet. And, you know, there was kind of a different incident, a little bit of a more, more obscure one last month, involving another kind of cancellation attempt of at my friend, themselves Here, and it kind of just got me thinking that it was time just to write a column about cancel culture more generally and how we on the right should approach and I've been like a little uncomfortable with how a lot of folks in the mm-hmm. right talk about this topic for a long time now. And I Me think, too. Uh,
1: yeah, you're on it. Keep going. I, kind of, yeah. I,
3: think, I think we see this the same way. Bet. And the idea, the idea here is that it is insufficient and it is frankly just wrong as a matter of principle for those on the right to simply say free speech, free speech, free mm-hmm. speech, or freedom of religion, freedom of religion, freedom of religion, yep. or cancel culture, fits, as if everything is fair game. That is not our stance. Not all speech is the
1: same, in other words. Yeah.
3: Yeah, it is It is epistemic relativism. It is moral relativism. I mean, you know, I'm a lawyer by training. It brings me back, of course, the famous line from Cohen versus California in 1971, where the court says, you know, quote, one man's vulgarity is another man's lyric. Right. Um, the same thing that we saw Anthony Kennedy's pen and the infamous Planned Parenthood versus Casey abortion case and the infamous mystery passage from 1992. This is not what conservatives believe. We believe that there is good and there is bad, that there is truth and there is untruth, and it's time to start acting like that, I think.
1: Good. I, I I am glad you did that, and I'm glad you brought up the Cohen versus California case as well, uh, which was about uh which was about a statement that said F the draft. I always liked uh what our friend Hadley Arcus wrote about that. He said it's not as if you know we're just imagining things, because the court certainly knew that he wasn't talking about the weather, right? <laughs> we can't just apply any meaning to these things. But in your Newsweek column, you write, "The default right-of-center response to the rise of woke-inspired cancel culture has been to, oppo- to oppose it to court in the name of free speech." Such a posture is certainly preferable to the diametrically opposite approach, but it mistakes the right's proper response at this current fraught juncture in our politics. I don't know if you'd agree with me, but let me try and put it this way, Josh. When um for lack of a better example, when the uh, when the white supremacists marched in Virginia, okay? Everyone mm-hmm. said, well of course they have the right to march. And I said, wait, do they? Do neo Nazis have the right to march? Really? That's where I start on all this. I don't know if you come down on the same place.
3: I do. I okay. in fact. Look yeah uh, my 92-year-old Jewish grandmother, bless her heart, she's still chugging along just as well as she was 20, 30, 50, 60, whatever years ago. To this day, Seth, she will never forgive Alan Dershowitz for defending the neo-Nazis of Tokyo right. and that thing is Supreme Court. Yep. Um, it's a little funny for me because, you know, I'm actually one of the fairly rare op-ed editors who will still run Alan Dershowitz. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> given, all, given all we've been through, we've become actually a little kind of personally friendly, but on a personal level it's a little humorous. But I do disagree with Professor, so it's like get there. I do disagree that you have an unvarnished, absolutist, first of them in right to say whatever the heck it is and to kind of performative cosplay with whatever kind of symbols in the public square on the sidewalk. Um, this is not our tradition. No. Um, the American tradition is one that discourse is broadly uh, permissible, of course, but there have always, always, always been moral limitations on speech. And, you know, the best founding fathers, um, from my perspective, you know, the John Adams, the Alton, the Hamilton, kind of like the true kind of more conservative intellects of the bunch, readily understood this. And, you know, to bring, kind of bring it back to the modern day, you know, the justice on the Supreme Court, I think you and I actually recently discussed this on air a little bit as well. It's actually Justice leader. That's right. Really Particularly so on this
1: issue. That's exactly right. Yep.
3: Yeah. He was the one justice who really kind of gets it on this issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had a very courageous solo descent in the snyder versus felt case from 2010 2011 whenever that case was that that case of course involved the um you know the bigots at the westboro baptist church citing right. or shouting all sorts of obscenities and garbage from the sidewalk at a u.s military funeral and literally a legal sent by himself and says do not having first amendment right to do this it's not our tradition exactly and a different generation of conservatives would have readily understood that. Yep. So something has gone astray.
1: Let me pick up on that on the other side of this break. Our guest is Josh Hammer. Uh, he, among other things, is the editor of the opinion um, section of Newsweek. He is the host of the Josh Hammer Show, a syndicated columnist. You can follow him on Twitter at Josh underscore Hammer, two M's and Hammer. You'll be smarter for doing so. I'm Seth. He's Josh. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Liebson Show. Opinion editor from Newsweek, Josh Hammer, is our guest. And we're talking about cancel culture, but we're talking about speech, freedom of speech, normative absolutes. They're not all the same. Josh, try it this way. Uh, The ACLU used to, let's say uh, liberals of the Alan Dershowitz type, used to quote – Oliver Wendell Holmes, they could quote Louis Brandeis as any number of places they could go, that the best test of truth is the power of the thought to get accepted in the marketplace of ideas or in the competition of the marketplace of ideas. And this is where I flinch a little bit, and I think you do too, and perhaps as you say 20 years ago, most conservatives would have as well. So is the point of the First Amendment really that if enough people are persuaded – that Marx was right or Stalin was right or Goebbels was right, we just let them have free reign and let that quote-unquote truth be accepted in the market every other November? Of course not. That's why we have Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution, not just the First Amendment, right, but the guarantee of a Republican form of government. Our founders were not, in other words, agnostic as to what forms of government should be accepted in this marketplace, yeah? Yeah.
3: Yeah, I think that's really well said. I mean, tying into the Guarantee Clause of Article 4 is actually a brilliant maneuver. I've never got to that together myself, but I, I, would, I would only add to that that, you know, I place a big emphasis, maybe even a bigger emphasis than some of our fellow Claremonts do. I, I, I personally place a huge emphasis, not just in the Declaration, but actually on the preamble of the Constitution, Good. because right there in the very same documents that Article 1 through Article 7 are listed, they actually enunciate. Substance of ends, they yep. actually enunciate yep. exactly what they are about. Right. Like it is, it is what Aristotle or you know, a friend how would call the telos. It is the overarching purpose and orientation of this entire constitutional and political edifice. And those ends are, you know, paraphrasing here, establishing justice,
1: it's a, it's a justice promote welfare. the general welfare, right? Yeah, D- domestic tranquility, yeah. exactly.
3: Yeah, I mean, synonymous with the common good and kind of the health of the nation, health of the whole. But there's in the preamble is a great emphasis on kind of idiosyncratic notions of individual autonomy. That's not in there, okay? Like, this like this notion <laughs> from, like, the plant-based Casey Mitchell passes, like, right. like you can, like, discover the meaning of life in your own kind of existence. No. here. We're not about saying that uh, a tyranny majority can can reign supreme. No, I mean like tyranny of majority was something that the founders, as you know, that were just as concerned about, arguably even more so. But at least, just as concerned, of course, about absolute monarchy. This is something they wrote about over and over and over again. It weaves its way all through the federal papers. It is embedded in our constitutional structure. So, no, of course, we're not morally relativistic or agnostic. Um, in the way that I think those institutions on the right kind of teach conservatives to think about these issues. Um, certainly not Claremont. They're a rare exception, obviously. But the uh, the rock seems to run pretty deep with things.
1: Josh, do you worry about uh, someone listening to us saying... Well, OK, Josh and Seth, you guys want to go ahead and just say certain forms of speech are impermissible. I mean, isn't that just a subjective test? Well, first of all, you and I aren't really looking to go around censoring people. Let's start with that process and start with that issue. Second of all, we ask juries and judges to make these kinds of judgments all the time about certain forms of other kinds of tests, someone's intent, someone's motive, right? Don't we?
3: We do. I mean, we send these things to the jury all the time, That I mean, like, the thing about like a defamation lawsuit. By the way, obviously, the common law of defamation was, you know, inherited in robust form, just like much of the other common law was, of course, that the American founding was effectively, by and large, read out of our. Legal fabric by the erroneously decided 1964 case, New York Times versus Sullivan. But before Sullivan was decided, defamation cases would go to juries all the time. You'd have to decide whether this was actually libelous or slanderous material. These are inherently value judgments. And the American legal system is well equipped to to, to adjudicate value judgments. We are not here as pure proceduralists to say, kind of just like, in, in, in values-neutral fashion that you have to hear bare-bones rules and kind of that. You now, I mean, like, uh, everything in litigation, even in, even in criminal prosecution, obviously, many times, obviously, you're ultimately affixing a value judgment. I mean, it's like, beyond a reasonable doubt standard. I mean, you can say that that is, like, a purely procedural threshold as much as you want there, but because human actors are fundamentally human actors, you know, as then going back, as far back as, like, Aristotle readily understood here, because they are fundamentally moralistic actors, not impossible to completely detach any semblance of making a moral judgment from kind of a juror in a box looking at like a beyond reasonable down standard I, i'm talking about like, you know like the this, like this, this, this specific stuff the specific fact pattern of the actual case is what i mean here but look this is this is our tradition um you know thankfully there was actually there are some And then to not lift a finger to help the likes of Whoopi Goldberg, who Mm -hmm. is saying that crap, crazy nonsense about Mm -hmm. the Holocaust. That is not unprincipled. That is both principled and prudent.
1: Perfectly stated, Josh Hammer. Perfectly stated. I read your piece uh, when it uh, came up, uh, I guess, online this morning, at least to me it did, in Newsweek, and I thought, yeah, this, this is what needs to get around because we are putting way too much, all of this, all speech, way too much into the same category and all cancel and all notions of any kind of censoriousness or censorship into the same category of just free speech. It's not what our founding was about. It's not what free speech literally is about, not if the free part is to have any life. Josh Hammer, bless you and Godspeed, and thanks for joining me. Godspeed, Seth. Thank you, sir. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. Thanks for spending any of your time with us. Uh, We love having you with us, and we take none of you for granted. It means a lot that you would let us enter your cars, hearts, homes, and heads. You bet it does. Let me close that um, interview I did with Josh Hammer just a moment ago with a concluding thought from uh, my teacher, Harry Jaffa. Free government rests upon the consent or opinion of the governed. Law is an expression of opinion, and the opinion upon which the law rests is more fundamental than the law itself. In this and like communities, Abraham Lincoln said in the first of his joint debates with Stephen Douglas, public sentiment is everything. With public sentiment, nothing can fail. Without it, nothing can succeed. Consequently, he who molds public sentiment goes deeper than he who enacts statutes or pronounces decisions. He makes statutes and decisions possible or impossible to be executed. The Constitution was the creation of a people committed in the Declaration of Independence to the idea of human equality, which is to say human dignity. Although the people is sovereign, its sovereignty may not be exercised in a manner inconsistent with the moral ground of its own authority. Think about that. Think about what the purposes of the Declaration were. Think about what the purposes of the Constitution were. Think about what the purposes of the First Amendment were. Think about the wholesale as well as the retail. Because, again, if you're only focused on the retail and you're dealing with bad goods, you're going to end up ruining the wholesale. You're going to end up ruining the entire purpose of the project we call America, which is held together by something precious and unique, the U.S. Constitution. We're here to preserve it, not experiment with it. I'm Seth Liebson. God bless you all. Have a great weekend.